Hey everyone, welcome to an all new episode of Suiting Up Podcast presented by Public.com and OutSystems. I'm your host, Paul Rabel, and this is episode number eight of season three. All right, we've got arguably the hardest working person in the business. When you think about athletes who have transitioned from the field into the boardroom, media, investing, contributions in their community, few have done it at the level of Alex Rodriguez or A-Rod. I can't think of more than a handful of athletes other than A-Rod over the last few decades that have faced the level of public scrutiny and judgment that he has, though he's modeled a level of resilience he would self-admit to and attribute actually to his upbringing, though it's not just about how you're raised or the company you keep. It's about how you continue to grow and more importantly, how you embrace self-growth. Alex and I share therapy in common. We talk about it on the show, and we both began the resurgence of our on-field careers through sports psychology, where A-Rod actually shares some powerful tips, some that I've never heard before, as well as strategies in accessing flow state in the biggest moment, or Major League Baseball playoffs, or the World Series, what he calls slowing down your mind from 5,000 thoughts per minute to 800 <laughs> That pace, though, allows you to be more present, which you then can access your peak performance state. And then personal therapy. That's tied to growth in our relationships, both in the locker room, romantically, and in business. Being self-aware is something he references, acknowledging your strengths equal to your weaknesses, being a compassionate leader, and he underscores teammate. Teammate, being a compassionate teammate. A-Rod was a born prodigy to the game of baseball, the fastest to a multi-million dollar contract, home runs, RBIs, stolen bases, in a compelling 22-year career. Multiple-time MVP, World Series champ. He won the Hank Aaron Award four times. Rest in peace to Hammer and Hank. He shares with us how he got there, and I'll tell you that there was no shortage of work ethic beginning at 4.30 in the morning, every morning at least. And we talk about Alex's $500 million SPAC he just raised. He's the company's CEO. It's called Slam Corp. He's fully involved. They're seeking a company to buy or merge with in sports, media, entertainment, health, or consumer tech sectors. They've done it before. And early reports do say that Slam isn't looking to buy a sports franchise or league, which might rule out the PLL. Anyway, A-Rod, as impressive as any athlete in the world. Today's show is made possible by our presenting sponsors, FirstPublic.com. They offer a whole new way to invest. Public makes the stock market social, so you can follow other investors, discover companies to believe in, and invest with any amount of money. Democratizing trading and giving us space to talk about it at Public.com and OutSystems. They provide the tools to help companies quickly build apps for web and mobile to solve for their business needs. PLL used OutSystems to help us design our COVID app for health and safety protocol in 2020, ensuring that safety for all of our players, staff, coaches, and cardboard cutout fans. Visit OutSystems.com. A-Rod, thanks for joining me, brother. Well, it's great to be on. Um, like I said earlier, off camera, you have a lot of uh, big fans here at A-Rod Corp that are big fans of yours. Appreciate that. You've been in the news a lot lately on the business front with Slam Corp. And then politically, we were all watching you at the inauguration. I want to start there. Here's you and your fiance, J-Lo, 40 million people watching across the Nielsen ratings in the major networks. The World Series at its peak was 50 million viewers. 
you're a Shark Tank regular. That's 5 million viewers. So you're familiar with that type of exposure. JLo crushed the performance. You're featured talking with the Obamas. Is this business as usual for you? <laughs> no, I honestly had a moment of like, what the hell am I doing up here? I mean, <laughs> my, my goal was not to be like arrested by the Secret Service or something. I was <laughs> trying to play nice. It was a bunch of Secret Service. Like I've done a lot of great things uh, in my life, but I got to tell you, after the birth of my daughters, that was pretty much the neatest. And I'm very apolitical. I don't talk politics. I, I think everybody should have their way on what their beliefs are and religion and politics and all of that. But I thought that that was a moment in American history that was vital. And you can sense the the nervousness, the clouding of just skepticism in, in, in our country. And this is the most greatest, most powerful country in the world. So it was nice to have some some harmony on such a great day. Mm. And aside from the Obamas, you're, you're known for keeping great company, Warren Buffett on the business side. So before we lean over to your SPAC, what helps you or what have you learned about building such a great network yeah, look, I think you're an average of the five people you surround yourself with, right? And really understanding everybody is special in their own way. You have to understand what are your superpowers, what are your weaknesses, what are your blind spots, and then kind of work and architect accordingly, right? Uh, I have some wonderful people that work for us at AY Corp, and I always say I'm no one's boss. I'm everybody's teammate, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sometimes player coach. Um, and, and I rather sometimes coach and sometimes I'd rather play, but both of them are fun. But really surrounding yourself with people that are going to teach you something, that are going to pull you in the right direction. And after a time, you start moving in the direction of those people you surround yourself with, uh, both good and bad. So really being selective about those people. And, and I really think that as you move forward in, in your young professional careers, for those of, uh, who are listening, who, who are ambitious entrepreneurs, is that your career will be defined a lot by those four or five mentors that you pick to be your advisors. Did you have any tactics or how did you go about, we can use the example of Warren Buffett, and there are a lot of athletes listening to this show too that are professional players and college players and they go, all right, I'm being told to strike while the iron's hot from an endorsement standpoint, from a wage standpoint, but there's also a network component there too in the arcane approach of waiting to retirement when your stock drops, things become a little bit more difficult. So do you advise athletes while they're playing to start building their network and then part two to it? How do you go about reaching out to someone you've never met? The, the one thing that I see is that, you know, athletes and entertainers, uh, the gift and the curse is their fame and their access. Hmm. But post, once you're retired, that fame and access, they both go away and they fall off a cliff. And nobody can really prepare for that. Like nobody can see the cliff dropping. Like it was away with the economy, right? Nobody saw that everything was great and then it wasn't, right? So I think one of the things that I've been fortunate for whatever reason, ever, I was 10 years old, I wanted to be the two Bs, baseball and business. I wanted to be a CEO uh, and I wanted to be a baseball player um, at the major league level. And as a young kid, as an 18 year old walking into the major leagues, playing with Ken Griffith Jr. and facing Roger Clemens at Fenway, I was nervous as any young 18 year old could be and should be uh, facing Roger Clemens. Yeah. And what I realized then was that I, I had this fear that I did not want to be a player 
that ran into financial trouble when I was done. Hmm. So my whole existence, the genesis of A-Rod Corp was really started from fear, right? And I did not want to be uh, struggle like my mother having two jobs and serving tables to, you know, midnight every night. So a lot of it came from there. And then I've always been a long-term thinker, not transactional. I think athletes and entertainers are, are big into transactions. Why? Because their whole system aligned uh, around them, whether that's your manager, your lawyer, your agent, their business is based on transaction, not on relationships. Yep. And if you can, uh, can, can break that mold and build your own relationships, be a human, be connected. It's okay to have some walls around you, but if Warren Buffett is open to having lunch with you, you don't need to take your manager or your agent. You can just show up by yourself or with your partner. Really important to kind of really focus on those things. And, and, and if you want to be, uh, have a career after your career is over, I think that's one way to do it. Yeah, those are great points. I want to lean in a little bit more on fear. I read the Times article that was done on you. It was really great. And you were very open and vulnerable. One of the questions that they ask you is that when you were playing, did you ever see another player that you thought was better than you? And you said, if you take away my first and last year, there's no way. And that's backed by your accolades, what you were able to accomplish, which we'll talk about. But I find that a lot of athletes, even going back to Larry Bird, he was famously quoted for vehemently despises losing. It is something that he wakes up every day thinking about and he plays not to lose. I think the fiercest competitors have that fear. Yourself, I've experienced that. But it can be pretty deteriorating to your personal growth and just your well-being and happiness. And what we don't talk a lot about is what happens once you make the majors or once you become a pro athlete. It's such a, an American culturalism to race to become a professional and get your million-dollar deal. And then you turn around, you go, well, how do I turn this career into 10 years or 20 years so I don't fall off? And that fear is a huge ingredient to being successful. But how do you balance that? And how did you balance that? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think um, I did a great job with it, right? I mean, I think the, the, the thing about being a fierce competitor, like you're describing, is there's a gift and a curse, right? The gift is you, you want you know, people on your team like that, that are just going to be all in all the time and are going to be perfectionists, you know, in love, entrenched with the process, not the results. And then the downside of that is that you're going to push, push the boundaries and you're, you're not going to uh, lose at any level and therefore you get compromised. And for me, getting back to uh, therapy and really understanding that I am enough, just exactly how God made me is enough. It took me a long time to get there. Now, me, like millions and millions of kids out there, uh, their father or mother left at some point in their life. My father left at 10. And I do believe that my biggest mission in life was to be a father to uh, the four kids mm -hmm. and my, my two beautiful girls that you know are now 16 and 12. Because I do think that when, when a parent leaves at that age, it's such an important time that I feel the whole left on me made me chase and chase and chase versus really understanding that what I had was enough. When you were uh, in high school, you quickly acclimated to the best player in the world, especially for your age. And you talk about you know, getting drafted and being the, the first uh, shortstop as a 
18 year old to start and you were crushing home runs. And you also mentioned that you were thrown into the lion's den. And then all of a sudden you turn around, you're 21 years old and have a $10 million contract a year. And that is big time challenge aside from what you were up against, which was trying to redefine baseball and be the best, be one of the best in the world or best to ever play. So with athletes that do commit themselves to the game and quickly rise, what were some things that you found were exciting about that, those moments and things that you battled with in a major way? A lot of the things that I got as a 20-year-old would be a lot for a 30, 40, or 50-year-old. Hmm. And I, I wasn't ready, but it was fun as hell. Uh, <laughs> it was a great deal of pressure, but it was fun. And I was playing with the Michael Jordan of baseball, Ken Griffey Jr. I was playing with the greatest pitcher of our generation, Randy Johnson. I was playing with the greatest right-handed hitter I've ever seen in Edgar Martinez. And I was playing for a Hall of Fame manager in Lupinella in this great city in the Pacific Northwest called Seattle. So life was good for A-Rod and young <laughs> Alex Rodriguez. By the way, I always make fun of people <laughs> um, talking third person. So that was a joke. I do not talk to my <laughs> third person. But uh, it was a lot. It was a lot. And it was, and it was fun. And, uh, you know, everything in sports and entertainment is accelerated. If you think about the business world, like you're just hitting your prime at 55. You know, you're just getting going. I mean, Warren's north of 90 and just cranking, right? <laughs> so you wish you had the knowledge and the experience and the hardship um, by the age of 20 that you've had by the age of 40. And that's impossible. So a lot of it, and the people that I've seen that have done a phenomenal job are, are people that have two great parents. I mean, Derek Jeter is one of them. Uh, Andy Pettit, uh, you know, Mariano Rivera. When, when I think about the great people that have just done a flawless job, unlike me, a lot of them have uh, two great parents that are present in our discipline. All right, we're going to take a break in between innings to talk about one of our show's partners, public.com. They are an investing social network. It's a free app where you can own the companies you believe in and share ideas in a community of investors. It's my favorite social media app today inside of an investment company. The benefits, among many, are built-in learning opportunities. You can talk about companies and market trends through their social component and benefit from investors with different perspectives as your own. And you can follow me there. I'm at Paul Rabel, as well as some other people you might know, like Tony Hawk and Professor Scott Galloway. Public.com also has zero commission fees, which a lot of competitors will charge you a commission when you make your long-term investments. And that goes to standard trades. And there are also no account minimums to get started, which means you can invest in fractional shares. You can literally invest in thousands of publicly traded companies for as little as $1. So sign up at public.com forward slash suiting up, and I'll get you started with $10 in free stock to invest in those literally 1,000 publicly traded companies. And you can try it out and then see for yourself. Public.com forward slash suiting up. Quick fine print. Valid for U.S. residents 18 and older and subject to account approval. See public.com forward slash disclosure. A lot of athletes have been highly recruited, highly touted like you were, and then have a strong one to three, maybe even five years, but you were able to sustain it well into your early 40s. When you were younger and building your skill set, I know there was a lot of by nature 
because of the essence of being such a prodigy, but the nurturing. How did you think about practice? What were you doing away from games? How focused were you? What was your mindset? You strike me as someone, obviously, on, on the business side that continues to chip away, highly intellectually curious. What were you doing on a physical standpoint? One of my superpowers has been that I've thought as myself as a, as a big underdog. Hmm. I was never enough, right? And again, it might tie up to, to dad leaving at the age of 10, right? Like it was my fault, right? So the goodness of that was that I was incredibly disciplined uh, and I had this incredible appetite to just get better and just work on the process to the point where, you know, I would wake up at 4.30 in the morning and show up to uh, my middle school and still dark out, you know, I would be playing catch or hitting by myself, throwing the ball against the wall or bringing a friend to help me, you know, fungo or just continue to hone the craft, hone the craft. And it was, it was exciting. That's what I love to do. So whether it was 365, 24, seven, you know, whether it's, you know, trying to sleep nine hours, hydrated, no alcohol, uh, working on the clock, running mountains, weightlifting. And it was always uh, an evolution and a journey, never ending journey of how can I perfect my game? It seemed like, at least from the notes that I took, 2001 all the way through 2014 you're you're an MVP candidate 2001 you should have won it 2002 you should have won it finally get the MVP award in 2003 I'm saying this because I'm just I'm just looking side by side on stats and then you got your third by 2007 one of the other challenges in sports especially in team sports is that we are defined by our wins and you're a world series champion the greatest really mesh with teammates and their leaders in the locker room. They care about the success and how can they individually contribute. We all at our core, no matter we're an athlete or whatever it is, just want to be our best at what we do and perform at our best. Contracts in pro sports incentivize individuals to perform at their greatest. In football, it's tough, especially I, I like to use the example of wide receivers. They're literally incentivized by catching balls and scoring touchdowns. And you wonder why wide receivers get made fun of by media pundits for asking for the ball more. It's a fucked up situation that the NFL puts their players in. And I know there's incentives in every pro sports league as such. In baseball, it's an individual game that makes its way into the team environment. Being called out or being kind of a best in class at what you do, how do you reconcile that in a locker room and you've played in different locker rooms knowing that you're one of the best in the world and that you're going to contribute to the team the best that you can but conveying to those guys that hey i'm still world series focused first yeah it's, it's a great one and it's harder and harder uh with time with social media with you know we are in a, yeah. in a me 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 environment right I, i've had a lot of players tell me they'll do anything to get you know five hundred thousand followers on social media yeah and, you know, my response is like, you should do everything in the world to spend 500,000 hours on your game to be a great player and be a world champion, right? And it's counterintuitive a bit, but, you know, I think about Bill Belichick and Pat Riley and what they both have done so well is they've taken an individual uh, time and era and still made it about the team, you know, the name on the front of the jersey, not on the back. And... It is difficult, but what I found out in 09, what I finally discovered the year we won the championship 
it was it was about being one. It was about having fun. It was about having some levity and seriousness and, and joining the two. You can't just be a robot, 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 right? You have to be able to carry people, um, have sensitivity, have compassion, talk and listen. Great leaders are great listeners, not just great talkers, you know? Yep. And uh, I, I remember many, many days with Robinson Cano, with Jabba, with Phil Hughes, with with Rob, with Melky Cabrera, you know, a lot of our young players, really spending time with them, explaining to them what is it that we need from them to be world champions. And a lot of it was the really small things, was playing fundamental baseball, was, you know, laying down a bunt when we needed to lay down a bunt to get a run to help us win a game in the World Series. Because in the postseason and World Series, one or two runs is five or seven runs in the regular season. Runs are at a premium. Hmm. So having the ability from a leadership point of view to rehearse in April and the summer of what's going to happen in the fall and October, I think is part of the story. And then how I brought that over, Paul, to A-Rod Corp is we have a system and metrics that, you know, 85 to 88% of your bonus is based on what kind of team you are, how you collaborate, how you're there, how you pick up the ball. You know, Larry Bird, you mentioned Larry Bird. Yep. When loose ball, who's going to jump for it? I don't want to have someone to say, oh, I can't do this. That's above me or that's beneath me. I want someone to say, whatever it fucking takes, I'm going to do the job. Count on me. And ultimately, those are the people that stick around because you know you can count on them. And you started A-Rod Corp 20 years ago or so. You were an active player. You were purchasing a duplex apartment at the time. That is still a point of contention around GMs and coaches for athletes, quote unquote, being distracted. But we all know that I think that's a, a fear tactic because you know you can only practice four hours a day and you got 24 hours and you want to sleep eight, but we can do the math. You probably faced a ton of pressure uh, when you launched your business ventures amidst being the highest regarded baseball player and best baseball player in the world. But you have been chopping wood since, invest in real estate, fintech, fitness, direct to consumer brands, and uh, and then most recently the SPAC. So quickly on Slam Corp, most major league baseball grand slams in history. I love the, the name. I care a lot about uh, the way that we present our ideas. And so you, you do that well. But from A-Rod Corp to SPAC, why a SPAC? and talk a little bit about what your interests and hope to uh, accomplish in this next, uh, call it one to three years. Yeah, I, I did the easy part. I hit the 25 grand slam. My nephew, Nick Silva here, was making signs at me. He came up with the name Slam. Okay. He was me every day. He wants shares uh, of our Slam core. But I think for the same reason why I think someone like you can be a great uh, SPAC sponsor, because folks like us, we have tremendous access and deal flow. And the barrier for us has been capital. Like we, we're one of the few people out there. Uh, if you think about where we are in the environment today, there's more liquidity, there's more net worth that has been created over the last 11 years in this run since 08, 09, uh, probably combined 30 years before that, right? Yep. Um, and if you had a, a, hundred, a few hundred billionaires, call it 15 years ago, you have thousands and thousands of them today. So families have gotten incredibly wealthy. There's family offices popping up, you know, five a week in, in each city, right? It's yep. just, they're popping up everywhere. And you're seeing this incredible thing that the, so much wealth has been created that you never thought this would happen. Two things. One, 
some of the greatest institutions are being picked from their best talent, you know, the Goldman Sachs, the JP Morgan, the Morgan Stanley's, and they're being brought up, brought up to their family office as CIO because they just can't compete with, with the payment and, and, and the incentive that these families are putting out there. That's one. And two, you never thought that guys like you and me, Paul, Paul you and I, uh, would be able to beat someone like KKR or Blackstone on a deal. Like that was, it was like talking about David and Goliath. Yeah. Right? But in today's environment, 2021, we can because everybody has capital. What they don't have is access. What they don't have is, you know, a media channel where we can go out and overnight on one button touch 300 million people around the world. Right. And it, it's a, it's a unique time. So with the SPAC, what is done for us is we're deal flow machines. Yep. So now a lot of these companies are coming to us. We're the, we're the huntee, not the hunters. So now we have a check that we can walk, we're walking around with for three to $7 billion and we can buy a company and our money at slam is worth more than the next because we can make it sing more. We can make, and we've done that with hymns and hers. We've done that with many companies. This year alone, we're taking seven, seven or eight companies public from our portfolio. Wow. It's an extraordinary time. I think there's going to be the world of winners and losers in SPACs, but I think we're very well positioned to do great things with our slam franchise. Yeah. I like that. I heard you talk about the, the biggest barrier to enter previously was capital. It's not the case anymore, what you just said. And then deal flow, you've said you look at a thousand deals a year three to four uh, hundred of them might be decent and worth looking. It, it reminds me a little bit, perhaps apropos to, to you as one of the greatest hitters ever. You see a bunch of pitches. How do you think about which ones to take a swing at, knowing that, hey, Hall of Famers are going to bat 300 and you're going to look at a thousand deals a year, take a look at a thousand pitches. What are you thinking about as criteria and perhaps there's process before it even makes its way up to you. Well, you know, it's all about ROI, right? On capital and time. And, and time is even more precious, right? Yep. So the idea that, you know, 10 years ago, we couldn't compete with buying a $5 billion company, even though we were the best buyer, we were going up against institutions that just, they, they were swimming on, on cash, yep. right? Um, so, so all of that now, we have an even playing field. So what do we look for in a company? We look at a company that has an enormous TAM, right? A target addressable market that's north of $100 billion, just mm. large. It has a moat. You know, you can't easy duplicate it. And then we're looking for a world-class management team that is irreplaceable, right? And then we want aligned economics, right? Make sure they're all in. We want to be all in. And then we want to look at this, how are we going to be in 20 years when we grow up, right? And we're not transactional right? We're relationship oriented. And um, we always say we want to be greedy, long, long-term greedy, yep. right? And then we always implement the 90% rule, right? And the 90% rule at ARC is basically, if I can sell you this cup uh, for $100, um, I'll give it to you for 90. When I was in my 20s, I would charge you 150. And two scenarios are going to happen. Paul's going to be pissed off and walk away. Or because I have the hammer and I have the goods, you're going to pay me and you're going to be pissed off. Yep. But what happens is Paul never comes back and does any more business with me. And then he's going to tell 25 of his friends that I'm an asshole, right? But if I have the goods, the hammer, and I don't use it, I say, Paul, I really value you. I have compassion that I do have the hammer and you don't. It's $90 and I'm not going to you pay. What's going to happen is Paul and Alex are going to do business for the next 15 years and we're going to do 20 things together. 
And I think when you're a young entrepreneur, you should be thinking about long-term greedy, not short-term. Do you think about that in the same methodology when it comes to bringing on talent as a CEO of SlamCorp and as an entrepreneur, as a business person, the best founders are scrappy. They're stewards of their investors' capital, but there are areas where you cannot be penny wise, pound foolish. So what advice do you give or can you share and things that you've applied to hiring people, especially at that negotiation point where they may be asking for more than what you have budgeted? From age 20 to 30, I would have a criteria about four or five things. Money would be like probably number five. And of course, I'm talking about pre-marriage, pre-children, pre-all of that. All I would be thinking about is I want to be working for the greatest boss, best mentor that's actually going to allow me into the room, that's going to teach me and coach me. Because ultimately, I'll have my opportunity from 30 to 80 to go kill it. But talk about business school. And one of the things we do at AROD Corp is whether you're 21 or 61, you're going to be treated equally, right? And I always want to bring in one of our youngsters into the room where people would text me and say, okay, um, the 23-year-old, time for her to go. And I write back, I said, no, she's going to stay for the meeting. Okay. And the meeting starts. Some people did that for me when I was really young and some people didn't. And I know the difference and it's life-changing because winning in business is so hard, just like in sports, but teaching someone how to win the ins and outs, it's priceless. It's great advice. And among a number of the things that you mentioned, the challenge of being an athlete, getting into the business world. I think about athlete stereotypes a lot. And something that I personally struggle with and have over the last 10 years, even to this day. And it's people wanting to define us as just an athlete. Perhaps it's people who want us to just entertain them or hit. But like you, Alex, I care deeply about my work off the field, yet we still run into these antagonists and sometimes even in the business world. So I'm going to read you a quote from a CNN business article that really bothered me. And it just came out and it ties into this stereotype that I feel as an athlete and business person. It came from the former TD Ameritrade CEO, Joe Moglia. He said, you can love a person as an athlete, but don't confuse that with knowing and understanding how to run a SPAC and a SPAC process. If you're attracted to doing anything because a celebrity is doing it, other than maybe eat well and work out, then you're attracted to the celebrity, not the foundation of which the investment was made. So also a, a derogatory comment at the end. What's your response process as an athlete and human to people who don't believe or don't want us to achieve? Yeah, look, there's always going to be a lot of honesty in the air and some arrogance along the way too, uh, against athletes and entertainers. But, yeah. Uh, Paul, I think it's like your job and my job uh, as kind of stewards of our community to, um, to show the way and inspire uh, the next generation. I got to tell you that Magic Johnson Greg Norman, Arnold Palmer are folks that I looked up to. And I said, boy, if they can do it, so can I. Mm -hmm. And then Magic took me under his wing about 25 years ago and started coaching me in business and started telling me what are the principles that I need to focus on. But, you know, to his credit, he took me into this wing. For my credit, I went out and wanted to help and wanted to listen and wanted to be coached. And it's like they say, um, the coach will show up when the student's ready, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and and that's what happened. But look, I, I think you got to take it one step at a time. Uh, you got to put in exactly the same amount of work, if not more, in business than in sports. And I think 
we make a mistake as athletes and entertainers if we just phone it in and we just want to do a bunch of transactions. We always say we want to go narrow and deep, not wide and shallow. Mm-hmm. So my only advice would be if, if, if you're doing something, just go all in. You'd rather do one thing and be all in than do five things where you're kind of showing up and not because that's going to really uh, emphasize more of the quote you just read me and give them more power. Yeah, I like that a lot mentors, whether it was someone helping you and influencing you like Magic or George Steinbrenner at the Yankees. I love the, the quote that you said. He shared three things with you on, on how to win a championship. Team, team, team. Talk about your time uh, with the Steinbrenners. Well, I mean, I, I was so fortunate. You know, Again, I, I'm a product of my environment. I'm a product and business of my bosses. And George Steinbrenner was the greatest boss I ever had. Uh, he had passion. He never took shortcuts. Uh, he never cut expenses. He, he demanded the most out of every player. Um, I, I'll never forget, Paul. I, I was really struggling in my first year in 2004. And uh, I was like, man, 0 for 21 or something. I could not hit water if I fell in it. It was just awful. That's, that was, was like, like me last season. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing this. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was just terrible. I couldn't sleep at night. You wake up going to the Bronx, you're just like, oh man, I'm just going to get booed tonight. It's going to be another tough night. And here I am, just won the MVP in 03 and the gold glove. And I was just on fire. And 04, I just could not get it right. And it was the first five weeks of the season in April. It was cold and I just couldn't get it going. And I'll never forget, I get to my locker and uh, it says um, GMS. And that's George Steinbrenner's initials, GMS. And I write it and it's a handwritten note by George Steinbrenner, basically saying, uh, I couldn't be more proud of you. You're handling everything well. Um, just relax. There's a long season. You're going to be here for more than 10 years. I'm counting on you, you know, blah, 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 George Steinbrenner. Amazing. And I'll never forget that night I went out and hit one home run. And then the next night I had two home runs. And then the next night I just went off and boom. Wow. And, and that taught me the power of words from someone who you respect and admire, how much it means to us. And as a, as, as a boss to a lot of people today, I, I always remember that. All right. We're in the, as they say, seventh inning stretch. And this podcast is brought to you by OutSystems, a partner of ours that keeps our business going. OutSystems makes applications that help you make the difference and solve the needs of your company. Allow me to explain. OutSystems empowers their internal teams to develop and deploy innovative cloud apps for capturing new markets delivering new services, and winning new customers for you. Example, last summer, the PLL needed to solve for a COVID-healthy and safe environment. We built an app with OutSystems that our players and coaches and staff could access to help us get through daily clearances. They also work with companies like Mercedes-Benz, Warner Brothers, Honda, Exxon, and more. So pretty reputable sources next to the PLL. So Build your difference with OutSystems today. Learn more at OutSystems.com. That's OutSystems.com. Here's another and new sponsor of Suiting Up Podcast. It is Ticketmaster. They're the official ticketing partner of the Premier Lacrosse League and are presented by Partner. At the PLL, we're thrilled to announce our upcoming 2021 summer schedule in tandem with the Ticketmaster team. And that's going to account for fan and player safety as our priority. We'll have a joint COVID policy available and a top-class seat manifest for each of our venues, complying by local and state outdoor venue capacities. That's coming this April. 
for all of you that are on pins and needles waiting for the 2021 schedule release. Buy and sell tickets online for concerts, sports, theater, family, and other events near you at Ticketmaster.com. One of the things that I always remember about you moving to the Yankees was that you were the best player in baseball, changed your position to third base, changed your number from three to 13, and coming into a locker room saying, hey, I have the awareness to know where I am in this world, but also I have the humility to say, I'm a part of this locker room and, and we want to win a World Series together. When you're in 2009 and you're in the World Series, I'm going to try to recall a, a moment for you. Top of the ninth, you're in Philly. Yanks are up in the series 2-1. There's men on first and third. Counts own one. There's two outs. And I've watched this a bunch on, on YouTube over the past couple of days. You rip a double. And is one of those moments, man, where everything's on the line those clutch moments, how do you prepare and exist for those moments? Hmm. Well, that's a great question. You went to the, the best moment of my career, which <laughs> I'm used to talking about the worst moments, not the best, but thank you for allowing <laughs> me to do that. A lot of it was preparation and frame of mind. You know, uh, I, I made a paradigm shift on how I thought about big moments. And what happened was, Early in my first four or five years in the postseason where I, where I struggled mightily and I had some good moments and some bad moments, I was always thinking about a transaction. I always wanted to have big stats, right? I, I hit 350. I wanted to hold on to something. And I realized that in short term, that doesn't work. You're facing the greatest pitchers in the world, the hottest teams, the hottest pitchers. Mm -hmm. And it's just unrealistic to go when you're hitting cleanup that you think you're going to hit five, 600. I mean, they're going to be very, they're going to be honing in on you, right? So I then remember driving to the game and I just said, in tonight's game, I want to have one moment, just one moment. It could be offensively. It could be defensively. It could be stealing a base. It could be a walk. And what that did for me is one moment, the mind thinks in a singular way and it lowered the temperature hmm. and it decreased the pressure to the level when we can all do one thing. It was so daunting thinking I had to get three hits today. I wanted to hit a home run. I wanted to hit a grand slam with nobody on base. I wanted to make a diving play. Well, if they don't hit the ball, you can't dive, dude. Yeah. Right? So the idea of saying one thing, one play, one moment, what ended up happening because I simplified my thoughts, then my slow pro thought process slowed down. I probably went from 5,000 thoughts to 800. And that's exactly how you bring the zone in, right? As you think less, less is more. You don't think, you just play. And what happened by chasing one moment, I ended up having multiple moments throughout that postseason. That's great advice. And I want to ask on that with pressure, flow state, sports psychology, and baseball and golf, which I often reference because of the pressure in those at-bats. Team sports that are like basketball, lacrosse, are in soccer, are very fluid and you're in the run of play, you make a mistake and you're still in the run of play and you're thinking about that mistake. So I've challenged myself to start figuring out in team sports what the up and down equivalent of golf can be in the run of play. And even basketball, you see the closest version of a hitter at bat on a free throw line where you have your rhythm. Are there things that you would do as a reset at bat or in the dugout or on the or in the infield where you would just say 
hey, I'm going to breathe X amount of times. I'm going to, you know, have this superstition. It's going to allow me to reset. What were some of those tactics over your career? I think two things. I think, you know, the mind, you know, I worked a lot on my mind, right? Baseball is, it's, it's all mental, right? It's, yeah. it's, like, it's like Yogi Berra said, 90% of baseball is mental. The other half is physical. You think about Broadway and Broadway has been around for over a hundred years. There's never been a Broadway show ever without a dress rehearsal. But yet we want to go out and play baseball or any sport at the highest level and not rehearse. And I don't mean physically, I mean mentally. So what I ended up incorporating was three, four minutes before I went to bed uh, the night before. I visualized my entire day, my game, the sound of the bat. And I would see it from third person, right? So I would see it like if I was in our dugout looking at me hitting. Hmm. Or I can do it me from my eyes, right? And so then you win the war, you address it. And then the next day you do the easy part, you go, you go battle it. So that was one from a preparation pregame. And then in game, no matter if something good, bad, ugly, great happened, within three seconds, I say next. And then you have to be able to move on. And you have to be able to do it for the good and the bad, right? So if you hit a home run, okay, great, dude, don't feel so good. Like, get it, keep your head down, you know, blue collar, right? Because I would say this to myself, like, don't be a jackass, like, just take it easy. And you're never as good as you feel, and you're never as bad as you feel, yep. right? So that means if you hit three home runs, you think you're Babe Ruth. Yeah. If you strike out three times, you think you you should be released. It's never that good and it's never that bad. So mm. it's somewhere in the middle. So by saying next, what it does, it triggers your mind to say on to the next one, on to the next one. And it was very helpful. And I know you carry that into business and a lot of decisions you make on a daily basis. You have a journal that I'm seeing you taking down notes now. And I know that you write down thoughts at night and in the morning What's your routine balancing so much as a CEO, doing media, all of the corporate responsibilities? Um, how do you kind of designate your time and, and what are some tips that you can share there? Yeah, maybe you can share tips with me because sometimes <laughs> it's hard for me. But, uh, you know, I think it's people, right? It's counting on people to, to do great things, right? And, and making them accountable. You know, we call it at AROT Corp, we call it VCP, you know, vision capital, people. And if you get those three letters right, you can do so much. Hmm. If you think about all the great things, Paul, you've done in your life, they've had VCP, right? And some of the things that have been shortcomings in both of our lives, one letter has been missing, sometimes two, sometimes three, right? But the great, great things, you got to have the vision, right? You got to have a big, big vision and it's got to be clear. Then you have the capital to fund it. So many companies fail because they don't have the capital. Yep. And then the most important thing is you got to find the greatest people in the world and pay them tremendously well and then incentivize them never to leave you. And, and you're referring to even just at the private level where our vision has to be met by capital and then bring on the right people. But what you've also done at the public level, even back to the early 2000s and your contributions to the University of Miami to help renovate their stadium, provide an opportunity uh, for the players there at the amateur level, but you've also worked with boys and girls clubs. You've donated over a million dollars, uh, built state-of-the-art educational centers. And then in 2020, during a, the pandemic, you and JLo donated 20,000 prepared meals to help hospitality workers in the Miami area where I'm talking to you now who had lost their jobs to the pandemic. So there's the capital component that also you're doing on the service side in the public. How, how, how important is that to you and your fiance and your family talk a little bit about the long game of where that benefits society. 
Yeah, I will say this, it, even in that is vision capital people, right? We have a vision to help out a tremendous amount of people um, that grew up much like us, that we needed the help of the Boys and Girls Club, of the community, of great mentors. Um, and then we're putting the capital behind it, but we're putting the capital behind it with great institutions that are way better than we are at deploying capital in that space. You can only be so good at so many things and we really, really stick to our knitting circle of confidence. Find the right people to do that and the right institutions. And for us, it's the University of Miami and Jennifer and I are both alums uh, from the Boys and Girls Club. We both sit on the board there. Wow. And we, we have given back there for 20 years and we'll give back to them for, for the rest of our lives. I'm sure they may be even in, in, our, in our will because that's how important it was for us. But the one thing I'm most proud of, I think, is you know putting uh, over 30 students, uh, first-generation immigrants like myself, uh, through college at the University of Miami. Mm -hmm. And hopefully there's another 300 behind that that we, we will do because ultimately the way we win championships as a society is is through education. Well, I really appreciate your time, man. We uh, we covered a lot from what you've done on the field to what you're doing in business and the impact in the community. I like the common threads of winning as a community, winning as a team, and then winning individually. Um, if I could get more time at some point, I'll, uh, I know who to ask. Thanks to Ash and Kelly. And, uh, Hey man, congratulations again on the SPAC. We'll try to get in there. It continues to trade upward. We fall in you. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. Continue the great success. Uh, really admire what you're doing. And maybe next time we're in LA, we can, uh, break bread and, uh, and continue another podcast. It was fun. I love that. Okay. For the recap. I have to reread that quote from Joe Moglia, former CEO of Ameritrade. He said, quote, you can love a person as an athlete, but don't confuse that with knowing and understanding how to run a SPAC and a SPAC process. A-Rod did a great job of answering my question in a pleasant way. The they go low, we go high mindset. I'll at least say that these quotes fire me up. I understand that I can personalize that quote or other athletes aspiring in business and other careers. You may be feeling when someone doubts you or makes a broad brush stroke of commentary against a cohort of people the same way. So what do you do? You put your hard hat on, you do what athletes know how to do best, and you go outwork the competition. I'm excited to see Alex continue and demonstrate that resilience, the way he educates himself, his humility, and continue to outperform standards and expectations. We're pulling for you in Slam Corp. Thanks for joining us, A-Rod. And for those of you that stuck around through the end of the show, thank you. Shoot us a question. My Twitter handle is at Paul Rabel. Alex's is at A-Rod. And I'll do my best to answer it if you tag us. And please consider subscribing to Suiting Up, whether you're on Apple Pod, Spotify, or any of your podcast distributors, and give us a short rating and review. That would go a long way. This show is presented by public.com. By creating a whole new way to invest, public also makes the stock market social so you can follow other investors like me at Paul Rabel for my weekly musings on public companies to invest in sports, media, and tech. This week, I talked about Dick's Sporting Goods, one of the biggest and I think fastest to return as we get through vaccination and herd immunity. Young kids, families, and even college and pro-level athletes will be buying their gear at Dick's Sporting Goods. That is not a paid advertisement. That's just what I mused on public.com. And I'll give you $10 to invest if you register today, public.com forward slash suiting up. And thank you, OutSystems. They provide tools to help companies quickly build apps from web and mobile. And when it came to the PLL, they were a huge partner in our success last summer, given 
we were in the middle of a pandemic and we built a protocol and a mobile app that was on all of our players' phones that they checked into daily so we knew that everything was safe and we could pull off a successful bubble. They can do any bespoke app for you. Visit OutSystems.com. Everything on this show is made possible by our incredible team here at PLL Podcast. This one was produced and edited by Brett Roberts and Nick Bailey. Research done by Andrew Manning. Graphics and design by Liam Murphy. Coordinated by RJ Kaminsky and our overtime newsletter from Joe Keegan. We'll see you next week. It's WrestleMania week, so expect a big guest. Someone who's known in the business for their cerebral approach to working on the mat and outside the mat. 